Wow, welcome. Sorry, just getting the gadgets all in order here. Come on, gadgets. Amen. Go ahead and turn over your Bibles to Luke 5. So, for those who don't know me, uh, my name's Stephen. I help lead the uh, campus ministry at uh, James Madison University. Come on, Dukes. Uh, Along with uh, my girlfriend, Amy Rosenquist. Yes, come on, Amy. (laughs) Amen. So, as a church... We've been going over Luke, uh, no, not Luke. We've been going over Philippians. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, well, today we're going to take a brief uh, sojourn into Luke, back to the Gospels, all right? Uh, what we're talking about isn't, uh, you know, about Philippians. Uh, it's not really uh, having to do anything with that. So just go ahead and just forget all that momentarily. Don't, like, forget it after you leave, but just, you know, don't expect this to be about what we have been talking about, all right? But amen. So we come here in Luke 5. We're going to start in verse 1. And this is an interesting moment in the gospel. And I, I, I love moments like these because Jesus is about to make the first disciples. And I love moments like these because I love moments where everything changes. Where something, where, where something is created out of nothing. Or something is started. Uh, and everything that, that happens after this point uh, you know, in terms of the chain of discipleship, even, you know, what we are talking about in Philippians starts here with the creation of the first disciples. And I love moments like these, you know, like the, the American Revolution, you know, when they, when, they, when they had the first Continental Congress and they were like, oh my gosh, like, are we doing this? You know, and they, they went from uh, going to trying to figure out peace to know, like, we are in open rebellion. We are, we're going to war. Everyone's, everyone's thought had to change. Everything after that changed dramatically. Uh, and there are so many moments like this in history, but we're going to look at possibly one of the most important moments in history right here where this chain of discipleship starts we're going to read here luke 5 verse 1 one day as jesus was standing by the lake of gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of god he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets he got into one of the boats the one belonging to simon and asked him to put out a little from shore then he sat down and taught the people from the boat When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. (coughs) Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is a story, you know, if, if we've been around uh, long enough, this is something we're all familiar with. Uh, and it, it seems relatively simple at first glance. Uh, but something I really like to do is kind of take a deeper look at things that seem very familiar. Things that we might, we, we might miss certain wrinkles because we're so familiar with them. Because it seems relatively simple at first. You know, okay, here's Peter. He's minding his own business. Here comes along Jesus. And, you know, he, he, Jesus performs a miracle, and Peter is so impressed that he becomes Jesus' disciple. He's like, okay, I'm going to follow you now. And it seems very neat and simple, and, you know, we, we read a passage like this, and our main takeaway is, okay, like, 
let's you know leave everything let's go become fishers of men uh, but there's something that kind of creates a little kink in this neat little storyline here that that should make us kind of wonder okay actually wh- what is going on here let's go back a page to Luke 4 starting verse 38 So right before this, it says in Luke 4, verse 38, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon, Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And this is interesting because Peter has already seen Jesus up close. Jesus goes into Peter's house and performs a miracle. All right, like heals his mother-in-law. If all it took for Peter to follow Jesus was just Jesus demonstrating his power then why didn't he follow him after this? If this is a story where it's just like, oh, well, uh, I've seen your power, Jesus, so I'll follow you. Why didn't that happen here? Why does that happen this chapter, in chapter 5 rather than in chapter 4? What, what, why is it that this moment affects Peter so deeply? Because like, surely like healing the sick, the sick is at least as impressive as like just catching a bunch of fish. Like, I, could, I might be able to, like, pull that off by accident. I couldn't just, like, cure somebody of, like, cancer, like, drive out a demon without, like, having something about me. Uh, I, I could have done the fish thing just by, like, dumb luck or something like that. I don't think there was this, this threshold of power where Peter was like, okay, now that I've seen you do two miracles, now I'll follow you. Like, I was on the borderline, you know, but now, now I'll follow you. Now I'm convinced because I've seen this in addition because if that was the case, I don't think Peter would have reacted so dramatically. Right. What does Peter do? He like falls to his knees, says, Lord, go away from me. I am a sinner. And he leaves absolutely everything to follow Jesus. You know, miracle number one, you know, the next day he just goes back to business, goes back to fishing. Miracle number two, leaves everything. Why is this? Well, let's pick this apart in, in good time. <laughs> let's let's pick this apart a little bit. I'll keep you guys on the line, you know. So we've got Jesus, all right, and he's he's teaching the people by the lake, and right away there's something out of place, right away, because he's not in the synagogue, all right, like a normal God-fearing rabbi would be. He's not out with the religious leaders, talking about the Torah and like impressing them with his knowledge. He's out. You know, among the dirty people, at the dirty lake, next to the dirty fishermen. It's not actually a place that most rabbis go to if they want people to take them seriously. If they want people to really uh, follow them, be their disciples, you know, etc. Jesus has left the house of the religious elite and he's come to the people to teach. Already, very interesting, very unconventional. And, and, and standing by on this scene is Peter. And his fishing crew. And says, we don't even know if they're there on purpose, weirdly enough. Uh, You know, it's almost like Jesus had to find them. They were just kind of sitting on the lake, 
uh, minding their own, own business, cleaning their nets. And, you know, then as he's teaching, Jesus starts to actually behave kind of strangely. All right. And as he's teaching, he, he sees these exhausted fishermen who've been out all night are clearly looking to go home. Like the last thing you do before you go home is just clean your nets. And he gets in their boat that they are now out of. And he says, hey, can you take me out there? It's a very weird thing to do. It's very imposing. It's kind of, if I was Peter, I'd be very confused. But Peter actually kind of owes Jesus one here. Because why? He's just healed his mother-in-law. In yeah. Middle Eastern culture at the time, uh, and even now, reciprocity of favors is huge. Like if someone has done something to you in form of a favor, like you have to do something back. And so Peter might be like, okay, this is kind of weird, but if this is how I repay this guy, like, sure, fine, I'll do it, all right? I'll get in the boat, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll man it for you. I'll keep it in one place, which is kind of hard to do on a windy lake. Uh, and, you know, Jesus starts to teach, and he kind of just has, like, Peter here hostage for, you know, however long he's, he's preaching. If, like, Jesus, if Peter wasn't listening, now he kind of has to. Uh, <laughs> kind of a, a captive audience there. Uh, but then, afterwards, instead of, like, taking... Saying, okay, thank you, Peter. Like, let me go back into, back into shore. Like, thank you for your time. Favor over. We're even now. He gets a little more intrusive. And he says, okay, take me out further. Go ahead and take these nets that you've just cleaned and go ahead and dump them into the dirty lake again. Why don't you drop them back in and let's just see if we catch something. And it's a little understandable if Peter was kind of frustrated at this point. And it's like, man, like, I have literally been out all night fishing. Night is when you're supposed to fish. That's when the fish actually get caught. Uh, he's probably annoyed. He just wants to sleep. And Jesus now seems to be overstepping the bounds of reciprocity. And just like, he's like, you know what, if this was what it, what it takes to get this rabbi out of my, po- or get me out of this rabbi's pocket, then sure, I'll do it. Okay. Uh, but still there's a little snark in what Peter says. You know, he's like, look, man, like we've been fishing all night. We're professionals. We didn't catch anything. Like, you want us to go to the one place that the fish definitely are not, which is in the deep part of the lake, but sure. Like, if this is what it takes, I'll do it. And we all know how this turns out for Peter. And the nets are so full, they begin breaking. It, it's insane. They've hit the jackpot. Because fishermen dream of a catch like this. You know, every... <laughs> this is what their goal is. Every day, they hope for something like this. You know, dream of, of, of a secret spot where, where the fish congregate and nobody else knows about. And that they can take the fish and then sell them. You know, Peter is rich after this happens. Jesus has just taken, taken him to the catch of a lifetime. And all his fishermen dreams are coming true. It's like, oh my gosh, like what does this mean? You know, he, he, he can provide so much for his family. It's just free money. He was going to go home penniless. And Jesus has just brought him to the largest catch that he's probably ever had in his life. Wow. And all of his dreams are coming true, but he doesn't react with glee or excitement or joy of any kind. He's fearful. And when he falls to his knees and he begs Jesus to go away, and again, it's not because of Jesus' power. He knows that Jesus is powerful. Peter says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Because what he's just seen blows his mind. Because every day of his life, he probably goes out in that same boat dreaming of this catch of fish every day. Because a catch of fish like this means that you're set. 
you, you can, you're rich. You can buy a better home. You can hire more crew. You can make your family comfortable. You can move up in the world because of money. And, and, but they have this catch. And standing in the boat with him, the person who's led him to this catch is this peasant rabbi, the son of a carpenter who's poor like him. And at will, this man can do everything Peter's ever dreamed of. But he chooses not to. And instead, he spends his days preaching and healing. Instead, he goes after God. And that blows Peter's mind. And he says, go away from me, Lord. He doesn't say master anymore. He says, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Because he knows a man who has rejected the material world. To go after God like this is more holiness than he's ever seen in his life. More holiness than he's ever come into contact with. And why does he react this way? Because he's scared. Jesus has shown Peter how futile everything that he values is. And Peter can't handle it. And it's amazing because Peter's scared. He's like, get away from me. Because in Jewish culture, if something is clean, if something is holy, if you touch it, you've defiled it. You've ruined it. And he's like, I don't want you near me. I'm a sinner. Get out of here. You are holier than anything I've ever seen. And you just need to leave here right now. But Jesus doesn't actually even recoil from Peter because of his sin. What does he do? He says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And Peter leaves. He leaves everything. To follow this man who can show him treasure and value far beyond anything he was going after. That's why he left. So he was like, this man can have it all, but then chooses God instead. Blows his mind. And this, I think, you know, it wasn't enough for Peter to see God's power. It wasn't enough for Peter to just know that Jesus was powerful. And I think in the same way... Knowing that for us doesn't necessarily make us leave everything. For us, knowing that doesn't cause us to just be like, okay, I'm going to ditch my whole life and just like go after discipleship and this life of suffering and, you know, uh, insecurity and all this stuff. And I think it's the same for us, you know, because all of us who have grown up in Christian households, but had then, you know, made the decision to really follow Christ. Like we know that just being familiar with Jesus, just knowing the power of God isn't enough necessarily just to get us to live like a discipleship, Right. Uh, I think even, even now there are things that we cling onto and hold onto. I think for some of us, discipleship looks a little more like, okay, leave most things and follow Jesus or leave just some things and follow Jesus instead of they left everything and followed him. I think we still cling to things that, that more or less keep us in that boat metaphorically, that, you know, more, more or less tie us to our old way of life. Instead of following Christ. No, I think, you know, for the students, we talked a lot about this on Friday, but, you know, maybe we're clinging to putting our security in grades and in school. You know, striving for that GPA. You know, our dream is to have, have this, like, great GPA, to get this great job and, like, get this awesome scholarship and just be set for life because of our academic achievements. You know, I, I think I've, I've shared this a lot, but that, that was totally me. Before I was a disciple, just idolizing school, just being like, man, like if I can just, if I just nail every test, you know, and get into like the best college, I'll be set. You know, I'll have all my security and I'll know where I stand in terms of other people. Like I'll be on top 
Like that was my dream. Uh, and it, it led to so much anxiety and so much worrying about like tests. And if like I failed something, it was just like devastating. Uh, and it was awful. But, you know, I think just more generally, maybe what it is for us is that, you know, the, the worries of this life as a whole that we're, is what we're clinging to. You know, we're worried about what job am I going to get or how can I get more hours at my job, make some extra cash? How can I jockey for a promotion or a raise or, you know, get, get more security from money? from uh, my housing situation, from whatever. You know, when we worry, we worry more about how much money we can make at our jobs instead of how many disciples we can make at our jobs. And the same goes for the students, you know, in our classes. We worry about our grades, you know, what our, what our GPA is instead of how many disciples we can make. And for, you know, everyone, you know, I think we, we, we can worship our schedules. Uh, you know, especially in this part of Virginia, schedules and like how you looked at People on the outside is like super important in society. Like people really, really care about that. And I, I think even for myself, like I feel so much better when I'm busy in terms of how I, how I, I think things are going uh, with me spiritually or just in the ministry. And I think sometimes it's, it's easier to be busy because we don't have to think yeah. and we don't have to process. Yeah. You know, it's like I can, I can just do all this stuff and I won't really have to worry about, uh, you know, how I'm doing emotionally because I'm just, I'm just go, 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 go. We fill up our schedule. Maybe we still make time for God. We still have quiet times. We still come to church, but we're not connecting with God. And we think, okay, just because I check off these boxes, therefore I'm spiritual. Being in the ministry, I know very well that you can do spiritual things and not be spiritual. Uh, and like, it's easy to like kind of justify, like I'm doing my, my entire day is just like reaching out to people and evangelizing and having Bible studies. And I realize I'm like, I'm not connected with God at all. I'm just busy. And I've just filled my schedule up with things, but I'm not even connected with God. Wow. You know, we fool ourselves into thinking that checking these boxes makes us spiritual. We're too busy to truly listen to God and his word. Uh, you know, that's something I'm really bad at sometimes. You know, sometimes I'm just, I'm focused and clinging to my schedule instead of God. And, you know, there, there's so many other things that we, that we cling to, that we don't want to leave. We don't want to let go of, you know, our, our desire for intimacy or you know, for an idea of a perfect relationship or a perfect marriage that's going to fill us up or fill all of our needs or just, just make us secure and we'll never have to worry again. Uh, and, you know, when and we, we forget that the only person that can actually do that is God. Yeah. Uh, and do we cling to the plans we have for our lives? You know, I, this is a huge fear for me is just like just surrendering to God my, my future plans. Uh, it, it terrifies me like continually. You know, will God really take care of me? If God is the primary factor in this decision, will I still be taken care of? You know, and so it's tempting. I want to like bring some selfish desires into this, into a, you know, different situations because otherwise I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to have what I want and what I need in this future endeavor. You know, and we think, you know, I can't leave these things. I can't leave this relationship. You know, I can't, I can't just abandon approval from others or this job or this money or these grades or this impurity or this sin. Like I need these things, but we don't need them. And I think when we, when we're thinking like that, we're missing exactly what Peter missed up until this moment here. Yeah. We're missing that God has shown us that all of these things are useless and compared to the kingdom. I think in the same way, like Jesus, Jesus showed Peter, he was like, I can get everything you've ever wanted in life like that. It's not even hard for me. 
Guess what I'm doing instead? I'm going after the kingdom. Jesus could have had all the stuff that we worry about so easily. You know, like Jesus, Jesus could have had the best wife ever. You know, just like woman number one of all history of all time could have had her. All right. Could have had the best kids. Could have had the most secure marriage in the world. Didn't do it. I don't know if you know this. Jesus died single. All right. And he was okay with that. Uh, he, he's doing all right now, I think. Um, <laughs> but he could have had this amazing job. Like he's, he's probably like overqualified for most things, seeing as he created all things. Like he could have had the most jobs he created. He could have been king over everything, all the money in the world. Guess what he did in his life? 33 years, he was penniless. 33 years, he was walking around the desert in sandals, preaching the word, going after the kingdom. No place to lay his head. He just forgot all earthly security. You know, Jesus, Jesus lived without all of this and, and with joy. Why? Because he had something greater. I think we forget that. We kind of just see Jesus as a robot. You know, it's like, oh, he had to do that. Like, he had to do this. Oh, it says Jesus was tempted in every way. Jesus, I'm sure, wanted those things. Jesus, I'm sure, was tempted with a relationship, with just wanting money, wanting to have his stomach filled and know where his next meal was coming from, right? Jesus was human. You know, and I'm not saying like all this, like we can't have a great job or, or, or a great family or do well in school. You know, like it wasn't evil that Peter was a fisherman. But man, like why, why would we chase after all of that as, as of utmost important, importance when we can have so much more? Right. It's like we, we, we get so finicky about it. But, in, you know, I, I think it's like if you were super poor. Let's say all you had were the clothes in your back and like $5 in your pocket, all right? Just, just play along for a minute. Um, let's say you walk into the Smithsonian, because Smithsonian's free, so you can do that with $5 in your pocket and just stay all day. <laughs> let's say you walk into the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and the curator comes up to you and he's like, congratulations, you won the lottery. You were the 100 millionth person ever to come into the Smithsonian, all right? Guess what? Come with me. And he leads you to the Hope Diamond. You know, like most expensive thing I can think of in America, all right? Like most famous diamond ever. Uh, and he's like, guess what? You get to have this. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Then he says, oh, there's one catch. You have to give me everything you have. And you're like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't have the shirts. Like, I'm going to be cold tonight. Like, this is $5. I'm going to like buy a sandwich later. Like, what am I going to do? Oh my goodness. Like, and you're like fretting about this decision. If you were that curator, you'd be like, Shut up! Just take it, man. Like you're an idiot. Just it's it's free. It's right here. Just take it. But that's how we get with our relationship with God. We're just like, oh, I don't know if I can give this up. We're getting so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. We're getting the, we're getting the all the blessings that God could ever give His creation. Uh, giving everything, even though it's everything, is such a small price. Such a small price. We're crazy if we don't do it. Jesus is trying to show us that. I think what's, what's crazy, going back to Peter, is Peter was terrified when he saw Jesus' holiness, that he, he was terrified that Jesus is, or his sin was going, to, was going to ruin Jesus, was going to uh, defile Jesus' holiness. And, and, you know, but Jesus, he didn't shy away from Peter. You know, he asked him to follow him, to come with him, to, to be close to this holiness. But it's not like Jesus asked him to follow him because he knew Peter was being silly. 
and I think we kind of read this and we're like, ah, Peter, you're overreacting. Like, it, it's not like Jesus was like, oh, don't be silly. Like, your sin's not going to affect me. It's not going to defile me. Because actually, Jesus knew that Peter's sin was going to defile him. Mm-hmm. Jesus knew that our sin was going to defile him. Wow. He knew that it was going to kill him and separate him from God. And he knew that he had to be close to us in order to love us, in order to love Peter. And he knows that our sin is going to destroy him, but he doesn't shy away from us. He doesn't hide. Everything Jesus does in this passage shows how much he pursues people, despite the fact that by coming in contact with our sin, he dies a horrible death. You know, in the story, Jesus knew uh, he, he was starting something that was going to kill him. Now, it was going to be awesome, but this was ultimately leading to his death, this moment right here. And, and he goes out to find and pursue the people who are going to kill him, who he was going to die for. And he walks among them. He comes close to them. He enters their world. He begs them to follow him. And he does the same for us. You know, Jesus, he pursues us relentlessly you know, to show us his holiness, to show us that there's something better out there. He dies for us in our sins so that we can leave everything we've been clinging to for something better. Yeah. For something far better. You know, the question is, are we going to leave everything for this better life? And the question is, what are you still holding on to that you could be trading in for so much more? What are you still clinging to? And we're, we get to trade this for something that's so much more fulfilling, so much more fruitful. And we get to trade everything to be totally connected with the person who created us, the person who knows exactly what we need, far, far more than we do. And we're, we're going to take communion here in a second. But as we take communion, let's really reflect on that question. Like, what, what do you need to leave? But more importantly, let's reflect on how, how Jesus brought himself close to us so that he could take on that sin to make us holy. How he, he came close to us knowing that he would be defiled, but knowing that that was what it would take in order for us to now be holy. You know, and we can have God and we can have eternal life and we can have it to the full because of this. So let's really reflect on that as we take communion. But thanks, guys. Right. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and pray here for the, uh, for the communion. Dear God, I just thank you so much, God, just for your word, God, just for your son. Um, Lord, I just thank you so much for just how much, how much you pursue us, God, how much you, you do everything uh, to give us a chance, God, to follow you, to show us your holiness, God, uh, to, to show us how uh, there's so much more out there for us, God. I thank you so much just for your son and his sacrifice, Lord, and the way it affects us all, God, and just your, your, your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.